Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. G'day, it's uh, Ben Morrissey here and welcome to yet another episode of the Morrissey Exchange, number 16 I believe. I am here today with my friend and contemporary Mr Alex Henderson we're lucky enough to be able to interview Andrew Hines who is the head of uh, Sherman Partners Research and has a wealth of knowledge. It was a real joy to convince him to come and speak to us because I think you'll find his insight and knowledge of a lot of what's going on in the market is is uh, well worth listening to. So, Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Ben. All right, so today the discussion will be a little bit different. I don't want to structure it as a formal uh, question and answer process, so it's going to be more of a discussion. I will ask a question to kick it off, though. Andrew, if you could just explain a bit about yourself, your career to date, and how you ended up at Shore & Partners. Yeah, sure, Ben. So, uh, look, I'm actually an engineer by, uh, by background. started off as a Chem engineer working in the oil and gas industry many, many years ago, and in, a, in the early 1990s, um, I answered an ad in, a, in the AFR for it to be a trainee oil and gas analyst at a stockbroking firm called BZW, and that ignited my passion for, for equity markets. So I've been in the markets now for nearly 30 years, um, and through that period, I've done a few different things. I've uh, so I was at BZW, as I said, which um, was Australia's biggest stockbroker, in fact, in the early 1990s. We had about 14% share of the Aussie market, bigger than UBS is today. Um, so a huge organisation. I was one of 14 resource analysts, would you believe, Gee, in the market. The resource sector back then was uh, was about 40% of the ASX. Who was second to you then? If BZW was 14%, was it Weirs? Would have been second? Yeah, Weirs, Weirs were up there. Um, Potter Warburg yeah. were around, you know, obviously, which became UBS when they bought them out. Um, so yeah, BZW became Aben Amro, became RBS, became CIMB, oh, right. and eventually disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so look, uh, I've been in, in markets now for nearly thirty years, and most of that time I've been covering the resource sector. I did dabble briefly in the uh, in the tech telco space, which um, raised a few eyebrows in, in around two thousand when I switched from being, in fact, I was I was Australia's number one rated BHP analyst in nineteen ninety nine, and then a year later I switched to being a telecoms analyst. You switched by choice. By choice, you... yeah, yeah. yeah I, um, what was that? Well, I'd been covering BHP for about four years um, at that stage, and you know, all I did was write research on was BHP. Was that the only company you covered? I, I covered two other smaller ones. I, called, I covered North, um, oh, yeah. which got yeah. took, taken out by Rio, and I covered uh, QCT Resources, which was a, um, a, a coal operation that got mm. bought out by BHP. Um, but yeah, back in that day, I mean, we had a dedicated analyst covering BHP and a dedicated analyst covering CRA that became Rio right. Tinto. It wow. was... You know, yeah, BHP alone was 12% of the Aussie market. I, I, I used to publish a monthly update on BHP. All I did was publish a 70, 80-page report on BHP every month. So what is it now, about 8% of the market? Oh, if, if you look at, yes, it's about that if you include the, um, uh, the, the, the UK listing as well. So what's it, about 140 billion market cap yeah. today? Yeah. So it was 12% in the early 90s? It was, yeah. Shows how little the market's done, you know. That's still eight percent of the market, and yeah. back then it was twelve. Well, back then market. you didn't have Commonwealth Bank wasn't listed. Yeah. You didn't yeah. have Telstra. You didn't have Qantas. Um, what else is up there? I suppose West Farmers, CSL, yeah, Afterpay. Anyway, yeah. that's a different <laughs> issue. And so you know, I dabbled in telcos for about seven years, and in fact, I was a. I, I think one of my claims to fame must be I'm, I'm 
probably the only analyst in the Australian market that have been top three rated in three different sectors. Nice. So wow. mining and metals, energy and telecoms. Um, and anyway, I ended up at Shore and Partners. Uh, so I've been here for about a year and a half now. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. I've still got a few more years left in me in markets. And uh, I just wanted to do something a little bit different than bulge bracket broking, which is... Yeah, you know, it's it's been a good career, but you know, if I had to write one more note on BHP, I think I would have gone mad. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm really enjoying myself covering sm- the small caps, which is what we're focusing on here at Shore. So, you know, I now cover close to twenty small cap resource names, and it's just a very different style of analysis and different style of broking, and a lot of fun. Remind me to ask you about Atrium. People will want to know about Atrium. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So, one of the more interesting movements at the moment is, of course, the iron ore price and given your history and knowledge of BHP and obviously it's production of iron ore, you'll know a fair bit about that. But, you know, iron ore was, what was it, 12, 18 months ago? Was it $55, $60 a tonne, give or take? Yeah, look, at towards the end of 2017, I think it got down to close to those numbers. But it's been it's been actually in an elevated price environment for a while now, post the, um, obviously, that horrible dam disaster in, yeah. in Brazil, which... You know, it's just completely disrupted the supply side of, of, of iron ore at a time when China's you know, steel making's really strong and therefore the supply-demand fundamentals have got out of whack in the short term. So, so it's now about $230-odd a tonne, yeah. which none of us ever believed was even possible given how available it actually is. What's your take? Is that speculative traders pushing it up to that price? Is that genuine demand? You know, can it be sustained? Look, it's a combination of both. Yes, there is genuine demand for iron ore. Um, you know, the, the steel make numbers out of China are just astronomical at the moment. And you know, everyone needs to understand this is all completely about China. Mm. Um, you know, China mm. produces about 50% of the world's steel, but they consume about 70% of the world's iron ore. And the reason right. why is that uh, in China, the bulk of their steel is still being produced by the traditional blast furnace technology, which is you, you smelt iron ore and coke and coal together uh, and you produce an, an iron product. Whereas if you look in markets like, like the US, for example, you know, the US produces just under 100 million tonnes of steel a year, but most of that steel is recycled. So it's being produced in what they call electric arc furnaces, where you're taking a steel scrap and yeah. turning that back into, into a, you know, a primary raw steel again. So you know, China is um, you know, the world's biggest steel producer, half the world's steel, but they rely very heavily on iron ore. And, and the issue China's had in the last you know, 10, 15 years is that they used to produce all their own iron ore. Um, they, they essentially ran out of their, of their own deposits. They still produce some today, um, but they've become more heavily reliant on, on supply from particularly Brazil and Australia. And um, when, um, when their suppliers are not delivering the volumes they need and their demand's still strong, well, then the price goes up. And you know, clearly that, that event in Brazil two years ago, massive disruption to the Vale output. By now, Vale was, was supposed to be producing somewhere getting up to around 450 million tonnes per year of, of iron ore from their you know, the existing operations plus their new big development in the north and the Carajas region. And uh, I think they're, they're, they're going to produce this year only around sort of 320, 330 million tonnes. So you know, that's a big, big shortfall in, in demand. And what's BHP and Fortescue producing? So Fortescue is around 170, 180 million tonnes. BHP is around uh, around 280. Rio is around around 330. And all other than Fortescue, which is um, which has gone well, uh, BHP and Rio are both producing less today than they were projecting they were going to produce you know, 
recently as two or three years ago. So the supply side has not delivered the tonnes into the market and demand's strong, therefore the price is up. Why are they but, producing less? Uh, for for a, a host of reasons. Um, you know, Rio invested heavily in their, in their port and, and mine capacity and uh, have had trouble with their rails, so they haven't been able to get their, their output up to the 360 million tonne target they, right. they wanted. I think they're, they're stuck at around 330. And, um, and BHP, if you remember... Um, you know, the height of the, uh, the the boom 10 years ago, they had some mega projects on the books and one of them was their outer harbour project at Port Hedland that they were going to spend billions of dollars expanding their port capacity and driving their, their iron ore output up, you know, another order of Manchu higher than where they are now and they, they, they haven't executed on that project. Yeah, okay. 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 And with Vale, are they close to reopening that, um, that facility that was closed down or are we talking years before it gets... Uh, but they're, they're gradually ramping up, um, and you know, Vale, I think you know, their projections are that they'll get back to that 400 million tonne type targets in a couple of years out, so the, the supply is coming. Mm. Um, I think the bigger issue for the iron ore market over the medium to long term, and look, everybody is forecasting the iron ore price comes back to something around the $60, $65 a tonne level as a, as 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 a long-term sustainable price. And mm. you know, when you're forecasting commodity markets, short term is always very, very difficult to get right. It's easier over the medium to long term because it's, it's dictated by supply demand fundamentals and cost curves. So the marginal cost of producing a ton of, of the commodity, in iron ore's case, you know, is going to be up around that you know, forty forty five dollar a ton level. So therefore, the price of the commodity is going to be a little bit above that. Um, and that's you know, the nature of commodity markets. I mean, the phrase commoditization of markets means you know competing away excess rent. Mm. Um, iron ore is not a scarce commodity. There is iron ore all over the world. Um, and if the price remains elevated for long periods of time, then people will find out ways to or work out ways to get that developed. And the big risk over the medium to long term for Australian producers and for and for Brazil is that China is now, um, you know, they're extremely concerned about the price they're paying. If you put some numbers around that, China is importing each year around a billion tons of iron ore. Uh, currently paying, to say, Ben, two hundred and thirty dollars a ton at the moment for that. Um, they, like us, think it'll, it should be more around $60 a tonne as a sustainable long-term price. So do the maths on that. You know, China is, is, is spending effectively $170 billion US dollars more each year on iron ore imports than they think they should be. That's a huge amount of money. I mean, you can build a lot of iron ore mines for $170 billion. And they don't love us at the moment, so I can't imagine they'd be too happy about doing it. No. And look, West Africa is, is the go-to place right now for iron ore. Um, I'm, some of your listeners may well have heard of the Simindu project, which is a, a big iron ore deposit that Rio Tinto um, are involved with. Um, well, the Chinese have bought the other half of that deposit, and they are busy... Um, uh, working out how to develop it now. It's it's a very big, expensive project. It's got 450 kilometres of rail, tunnels, bridges, new port required. Uh, very difficult to make a, an adequate return for a company like Rio Tinto investing in that. But if you're a Chinese consumer of iron ore, well, it just makes you know, super sense. Go and spend 20, 30, $40 billion investing in infrastructure mm. in Guinea yeah. and turn Guinea into your own private iron ore mine, which is what they've done with Bauxite. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the bauxite story, the same thing happened. Um, so bauxite is, a, is the precursor commodity for alumina and then for aluminium. And you know, if you wind the clock back six, seven years ago, the big mining companies in the West, the Rios, the Alcoas um, of the world, the South32s, all thought there were opportunities to sell bauxite to China. Um, and what's happened is the Chinese instead have spent billions of dollars in Guinea, turning Guinea from a zero tonnes of export bauxite in 2015 to... 100 million tonnes of exports in the current year, and the world's biggest exporter of bauxite. And that bauxite is all being delivered into China. 
So that's so, what's going to happen with iron ore. Yeah, that was, that was my question. So you think that same sort of thing's going to happen with Simindu? Correct. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. And, and over what time frame? Oh, look, it, it's not quick investment. So I th- if anyone's going to do it quickly, it'll be the Chinese. Yeah. Uh, but it'll still take them three, four, five years you know, to, to really get going. Well, it's not that long, uh, is it? I mean, so, but you know, it'll take them ten years to, to get to the sort of volumes they need to have a significant impact on the market. What about the, 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 doesn't one of the government bodies, CITIC, the Chinese government body, uh, have a stake in a Clive Palmer mine, which is worth a billion dollars or something like that in, in Australia in WA? They do, yeah. Um, so they operate um, uh, a what's called a magnetite iron ore project in, in WA. It's the one that uh, Clive Palmer's picking up still his royalties from yeah. uh, from Citicon, yeah. So, and and the Chinese own a stake in Rio still, if you remember. You know, Chinelco uh, is still a major shareholder in, in Rio Tinto. I did forget. Yeah, they own fourteen percent of it, I think. Okay, and, and you don't you don't think there's any other moves that they would make that are going to threaten the capacity for Australia to supply them over the course of the next two to three years? Oh, look, who knows what's going on in the minds of the Chinese Communist Party, but clearly they're very upset with Australia at the moment in a, in a whole host of factors. Mm. And, um, you know, it, can they do something? Would they disrupt iron ore supplies? I don't think so. I think their iron ore is too important to their economy and they will not put barriers up in the way of, of uh, preventing Australian production. But they will certainly, over time, try and diversify their their supply sources away from Australia, and that's the risk for the Australian producers. And would they um, consider going that scrap route like the the Americans, or oh, is that something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's going to be a a growing source of steel in China. I mean, China's still a relatively new economy. Um, They'd have to import it from somewhere, wouldn't they? No. Well, the, you, you can import scrap, but I, more of it will be generated over time internally. Um, you know, the, the, the life cycle of steel in buildings and constructions is quite a long, long life. You know, we're talking yeah. here minimum 20 years, probably more like 30 to 40. So uh, all that investment that's been going on in Chinese construction, you know, from the 1980s is now just starting to come to the point where, you know, and I, I think the quality of the building in China wasn't great either in the 80s and 90s. So some of those buildings might, might already be uh, the point where they need to be replaced. So, yeah, um, yeah th- there will certainly be a growing source of scrap internally in China. Uh, and if you look at the trajectory of other you know, economies like the Koreans and the Japanese and you know, how, how quickly scrap um, moves up, you know, China will certainly follow that path. And you know, in the course of the next you know, 15, 20, 30 years, China will end up you know, probably around the 50% level of, of scrap consumption as well. So that, how, that, that's a headwind for iron yeah. ore demand, but it's not a short-term headwind. How do they use the scrap? Is it literally melted down into the individual elements and then reused in that process or is it just used as steel straight off the bat melted down and used as steel yeah so it, it, it goes one of two routes you can feed scrap into a blast furnace and in fact blast furnaces do require a certain amount of scrap uh, to be to be consumed so you know anything up to 20 percent of the feedstock of a blast furnace is scrap so it just goes into the molten yep. iron deposit um on uh, on basin and um the other uh, route is these things called electric arc furnaces which um uh, you just Put all your scrap steel in, you melt it down, and uh, you, know, you, you convert it back into the, the, the raw materials again. The, of, of, from you know. whence it came. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. And from a chemical makeup, I mean, I often think about this, and I've never actually asked you um, can it be reproduced otherwise? You know, chemically, you can work out exactly what the components are within iron ore. Is there some potential for the chemical components to be manufactured in a cost effective way? to replace the, the digging up of iron ore? 
well, it's all about the iron, you know, the, the element iron, which is, um, you know, you can't really replace that. It's You either have to get that from the primary source, which is iron ore, or you have to get that from a, from a recycled existing iron unit. So, no, you can't replicate the, um, yeah. the, the chemistry in the way you're, you're thinking of, no. Fair enough. When do you think the uh, that price will stabilise? When when do you think oh, that, that will happen? So that's a really difficult question, Alec. Look, if you'd asked me when iron ore was one hundred and thirty dollars a ton earlier this year, and you'd asked me is the iron ore, iron ore price too high? I'd have said yes. Yeah. Here we are at two hundred and thirty dollars a ton, and you know it's, it's even it's much more elevated. Look, there must be an element of speculative activity that's driving this as well. Yeah. Um, you know, there, you, you cannot fundamentally justify an iron ore price at, at these sort of levels. So there is an element of, of speculation. And you've seen announcements from the Chinese authorities trying to trying to quell speculative activity on... You know, iron ore is now traded on the, the Dalian um, exchange in China. Mm. And, in fact, the volumes of, of futures and paper contracts on iron ore now swamp the, the physical trade in iron ore. So there's, wow. a, okay. there's, a, there's a lot of speculative paper money that's... You know, if you're a, if you're a speculative investor in China and you want exposure to U.S. dollars or you want exposure to commodity markets, you know you go and buy futures contracts on the Dalian, and I'm sure a lot of what this uh, this this spike in the price is due to that. And the issue with that, of course, is that that can go up quickly and it can come down quickly. Yeah. So, look, I wouldn't be surprised if I woke up in two months' time and the iron ore price was back at 120 dollars a ton. You know, that would certainly not surprise me at all. I don't think we're coming back below 100 in the short term, just because the the underlying supply. Of, um, demand fundamentals are, uh, are, 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 you know, obviously very supportive of the iron ore price at the moment. But over the medium term, you know, back to that sixty sixty five dollar a ton level is where we're heading. I, I dare say you won't be able to answer this straight off the bat. But if if you're talking about a hundred dollar floor on the iron ore price, do you have an idea as to say what the Fortescue price should be worth based on that as a potential longer or medium to longer term price? Yeah, look, I actually don't cover Fortescue now, Ben, so I don't... I'm, 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 I'm aware, I'm aware. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, a little bit more divorced from the numbers than, than I used to be. Um, so, difficult to give you an absolute no, number. Right. But look, it's... I mean, Fortescue, if you look at the history of the, of the share price of Fortescue, you know, it's been, you know, it was down at $1.50, I think, at one mm. stage, um, when they were looking pretty bleak in terms of... Yep. Uh, you know, the discounts for their low-grade product were, were extreme. The iron ore price was low. Their, their, their debt was... Well, they had so much debt. So much debt. Terrifying and, uh, amount of debt. Uh, yeah, and that was one of the things you always had to be wary with as Fortescue is that the risk appetite of Andrew right. Forrest is just so much more yeah. uh, than most investors that you're, you're along for a pretty uh, interesting ride investing in it. The debt's gone now. So you know, that will mean that Fortescue will trade at much higher prices than it was even when we go into the next down cycle. So... Um, you know, it's uh, it's not it's not the, the problem child company that that, that might have been no, five years ago. Not. You mentioned the word cycle there. Um, are we in a super cycle for commodities? Is that um, what, how you're looking at it? Oh, yeah, I. So, I mean, cycles come and go, and super cycles sort of in a bit of a motive tone. tone. I, I'm not sure it's a super cycle. It's it's certainly an elevated cycle, and it's certainly a point in markets where. The, the, the level of fiscal stimulus from governments around the world is just extraordinary to, mm. to, to grow ourselves out of the COVID downturn from last year. You've got interest rates are close to zero around the planet. You've got fiscal stimulus. Therefore, demand for commodities is going to be going to be strong. And when you couple that with what has been quite a period of, of underinvestment in new supply, yeah. because the, the last down cycle wasn't that far ago in the 2015-2016 period when... You know the, the big miners were all being lambasted for overinvestment mm-hmm. in that yep. in the previous period, and they're all on this um, you know, capital discipline uh, mantra. And 
you know, whereas Rio would call it value over volume, which is yeah. you know, a bit of a silly term, but you know, it is what it is. Um, so they haven't been investing. So there hasn't been a lot of new supply coming. Demand's good. Therefore, we are in a period of elevated commodity prices. And you know, is it a super cycle? It might be in terms of it will, it will last for quite a long period. Overlaying all this, there's an incredible transformation going on around the world in the energy markets, um, where we're moving away from uh, you know, fossil fuels, uh, moving into the, the, the new electric vehicles and batteries and yep. you know, electrification of everything sort of sort of concept. So you know, there's a whole there's a whole class of commodities that are leveraged to that: all the battery metals, commodities, the nickels, the cobalts, lithium, manganese. Uh, graphite, um, and so the demand for all those commodities is going to be going up extraordinarily high over the next period. Doesn't mean the price will will necessarily go up because if supply is there to meet those demand forecasts, well then, and you see that with lithium. I mean, lithium is a great example of a of a boom bust cycle in the last five years, where you know in 2017 the price of lithium went went nuts as everyone was talking about EVs and batteries and. You know that incentivised a whole bunch of supply into the market. We got oversupplied. The price collapsed again, and and now we're back in an environment where it's gone back, going back up again because demand's now now coming through. So it's going to be a rocky road as you go through it, and I'm not, yep. not sure it's going to be a, you know, a a consistent sort of march upwards in okay. prices of commodities. But you know, there's no doubt that we're in an elevated environment right now where demand is very strong and supply is constrained. Mm. So it sounds to me like you were saying it's going to be cyclical throughout, but structurally there's going to be increasing demand as a result of the requirement for raw materials to, to fuel the infrastructure development around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, copper is one I didn't mention before. I mean, you know, yeah, the, yeah. You know, the demand for copper um, with electric vehicles, with, with grid infrastructure, just the whole electrifying the world sort of thematic and and I charging saw, stations and all the rest of it. Yeah. Demand for copper is going to be huge. I saw BHP, one of their latest ads, showing how green they are because copper is required for renewable energy. You know, it's, it's interesting how the, how the narrative's changing with all this. And, and just on that sort of clean and dirty, um, you and I were discussing some months back how uh, the Western world or the, uh, the world ex-China had reduced... Um, the amount of uh, power that was produced from coal-fired power stations or, or reduced the number of coal-fired power stations, I think, by 32 gigawatts. And China actually built a further 33 gigawatts of, of yeah. coal power stations. I mean, you know, we're, we're invested in things like Whitehaven because the demand is still there and there's good demand coming out of India and some of these other areas. What What's your take on, on coal from that, uh, thermal coal from that perspective? Yeah, look, it's pretty clear that the world is now getting serious about decarbonisation in a way that it wasn't perhaps, you know, even five years ago, you know, despite all the, you know, the Paris Accords and the like, you know, you're, you're now seeing, you know, ambitious statements from governments around the world about carbon neutrality by 2050 or, or 2060 in the case of China. But, you know, a lot of countries still haven't got plans to get there. I mean, there's just statements. They're not actually mm. active plans. And that's a lot what the Australian government's on about when they're going to these, um, you know, the Biden Climate Summit recently. And, you know, Scott Morrison's uh, you know, address of that was all about, well, it's all very well to have targets, but is there a plan to get there? China is is a big problem with that. I mean, China, you know, as we know, produces and consumes over half the world's coal. Um, and they, for the first time, are actually adding to... So last year in 2020, the world added coal-fired power stations mm-hmm. in a yeah. net sense, first time for five years. Mm-hmm. And that was completely and, and utterly driven by China. So... You know, it, efforts that we make in countries like Australia, which whilst important and we need to make those efforts, 
um, get swamped by you know, decisions that are being made in China in terms of the amount of, amount of carbon that's being emitted. So it's an issue. It's always the polarising argument too, isn't mm. it? You've got, you've got a group of people who say we should be leading and so show how it should be done and then you've got other people who are saying, well, what's the bloody point? Yeah. You know, there's, there's no point in penalising ourselves from an economic standpoint if it's actually going to have no impact on this decarbonisation yeah, process. look, I, and I think the answer, Ben, is that Australia in isolation will make no difference whatsoever to global emissions, regardless of what we do as an individual country. But we do have a role as a, you know, a, a, an advanced Western democratic nation to, to show leadership on, on this. And, you know, however we're going to expect the, um, you know, the Brazilians and the Chinese and the, the Indians to, you know, curb emissions if, if countries like Australia are not. So, you know, you know there is a bit of... You know, moral obligation, I think, on us to show leadership. But you're right; we don't want to be doing, you know, virtue signalling for its own sake. Um, destroying the economy in the process is something we need to need to avoid. So, you know, if we'd shut down all our coal-fired power stations overnight, we'd send a great signal. But you know, our power prices would go through the roof, our economy would suffer. Correct. And the yeah. reality is, it wouldn't make any difference to the global emissions, other than a signal to other countries. Why don't you guys do the same? All right, we might cut it off there. There's some wonderful insights from Andrew and we might take a break and resume the second instalment of this discussion in the next podcast. Uh, Thank you to everyone for listening to this interview with uh, Mr Andrew Hines. If you have any queries about this discussion or you require any other information, give us a call on 9268 shoot us an email or jump onto our website at morrisseygroup.net. See you soon. The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shore and Partners Limited, ABN 24003-221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.